Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 5, 5G. Written out of sequence with the other Season 1 episodes, 5G was later inserted as the fifth episode of Mad Men, airing August 16, 2007. It features a directorial debut for Leslie Linka Gladder, who became a fan of the series and contacted her agent yearning to direct an episode. Linka Gladder would become a regular director on Mad Men, and eventually win Emmys for her work on both Mad Men and Showtime's political thriller, Homeland. The episode treats themes of superficiality and depth, presenting a central idea that things are not always what they seem. Mad Men's tagline is, Where the Truth Lies. The arc of the story is about discovery, about what's exposed in the process of self-actualization. Throughout its first four episodes, Mad Men has hinted at its characters' secrets, revealing them in intimate moments, keeping them hidden under the surface. But in 5G, we start to unearth some of these secrets. It's the payoff to some of the show's subtextual promises. 5G centers around three subplots involving Don, Peggy, and the young office executives, the first driven by Ken Cosgrove's publishing of a short story in the Atlantic Monthly, the second showing Peggy struggling with the burdens of Don's infidelity, and the third centering around the question we've asked since Mad Men's debut. Who is Don Draper? We enter our story amidst a celebratory night for Don, dressed sharply in a black tuxedo, and Betty, wearing a white dress. The couple drunkenly stumble into their awesening bedroom after a night out. We rarely get to see Don and Betty in this way, happy together, flirting, and energetic. Don has won a Nuki Award for his advertising creativity, and Betty teases him that it would look good in his office. Don downplays winning the award, but it's clear that he enjoys the recognition. Don wakes the next morning with Betty, whose hair is still pinned up and whose makeup is smeared on her pillowcase. The two cough and groan after their night of overindulgence until they're interrupted by their daughter. Sally points at the trophy on Don's nightstand, a tall wooden frame with a chrome horseshoe, and Betty explains that Don has won an award. As Don slams the bathroom door, the horseshoe falls, swinging on the single nail that mounts it to the frame. Later that morning, Sterling Cooper's receptionist, Allison, congratulates Don as he enters the office, telling him that Advertising Age ran a picture of him and Roger from the award ceremony. Don feigns nonchalance, saying, thankfully, no one reads that, but he walks away smiling. As he walks to his office, Peggy greets Don enthusiastically. She congratulates both Don and Ken Cosgrove, who waits in Don's office for a meeting about the Liberty Mutual account. Ken tells Don that he's just had his short story, Tapping a Maple on a Cold Vermont Morning, published in the Atlantic Monthly. Don congratulates Ken, looking over the story as Pete Campbell enters with Paul Kinsey. Pete and Paul are astonished and ask Ken about his writing, becoming jealous as he reveals that he's also written two novels. Actor Aaron Staten was initially cast as an extra for Mad Men's pilot episode. It was after the pilot's success that Mad Men decided to keep his character, Ken Cosgrove, and set out to give him a motivated backstory. Cosgrove is from Vermont, a former Navy enlistee and a graduate of Columbia. Before this episode, he received little focus and was portrayed mostly as an immature, skirt-chasing young guy. Staten himself didn't know much about Ken. He was on a honeymoon with his wife when he found out from another cast member, who told him, Hey, Ken's a writer. And Ken's carefree nature contrasts with many of the cast members presented so far. He's unassuming and takes his life a bit less serious than office peers like Pete and Paul. But he succeeds through his own merit, never straining himself too much. 
As he stands in Don's office with Pete and Paul, the men discuss Liberty Mutual's account. Don reprises his familiar brainstorming technique, asking, who uses this? And suggesting an executive account for men who want to keep their finances private. Statement sent to the office. Yes. Liberty Capital Private Account. No. Executive account. Madman notably portrays the complicated duality of life, how people construct different identities at work and in their personal lives. But it's noticeable that here we see examples of Don's personal life seeping into his work. As much as Mad Men makes Don prominent, it always keeps him partially concealed. Even when the show exposes parts of Don's secret life, like his extramarital affairs, it leaves us feeling like there's more to know. We've talked in the past episodes about how Mad Men's photography contributes to the feeling that we don't fully know him. Note how the lighting in this scene casts a shadow on half of Don's face as he devises this idea of an account for secretive men like himself. And as soon as the junior men leave Don's office, we're reminded more explicitly about Don's secrets. Midge calls, giving a fake name, Bick Spiderback, an influential American jazz trumpet player from the 1920s. She asks Don to meet that afternoon and tells him that she wants him to ravish her. Peggy sits outside working dutifully. She moves to the phone to place a call, but she overhears Midge when she picks up. Peggy freezes, shocked and unsure of herself, continuing to eavesdrop on Don and Midge's conversation. She sits stunned at her desk as Don exits his office, grabbing his coat and offering a lie about where he's headed. I want to note here some of the details of Peggy's stylistic portrayal. We've previously discussed how Peggy's attitude doesn't fit into the fast and loose office culture of Manhattan. She's from Brooklyn and brings a more old-fashioned sense of right and wrong than the show's other characters. And this old-fashionedness is embodied in her style. She's portrayed youthfully, her hair worn in a ponytail for all but three scenes in season one. But her clothes are more traditional. She wears ankle-length skirts and blouses with collars. And her style was very intentional with showrunner Matthew Weiner insisting on many of these details, hoping to portray Peggy in a more classical 1950s charm. These details contribute to an innocence in how Peggy approaches the world, and when she's confronted with Don's infidelity, it shatters the image she's drawn since he rejected her in the pilot episode. Don has, to this moment, protected Peggy. He's one of the few people at Sterling Cooper who encourage her and make her feel like she belongs, and to Peggy, Don seems almost perfect, a brilliant, virtuous man with a storytale family. It's predictably Mad Men that she's the one to unearth Don's secret, and it enduringly alters the trajectory of their relationship. Meanwhile, Pete, Paul, and Harry Crane meet in Pete's office, gossiping about Ken's story. Pete questions how Ken could be successful since he doesn't come from wealth, while Paul maintains that Ken isn't even a writer, boasting about his own stories and Harry simply wonders how Ken could be so involved as a writer without telling anyone. Don and Midge lay in bed at her apartment, draped in sheets, embracing. He looms over her as he tells her not to call him at his office. Upset that Don waited to tell her this, Midge suggests ending their relationship, but Don insists that he likes things the way they are, apologizing for hurting her feelings. She softens and suggests that acting like somebody else must be challenging for Don, saying, I know. I like being your medicine. 
There's an unrestrained emotion that Midge brings to her interactions with Don. She represents to him a modern woman, embodying a freedom he perhaps longs for in his own life. But Midge's freedom comes from a complete acceptance of herself, and it's unclear that Don is ready to do the same. Here Midge is pushing Don to dig deeper, but his life is so tumultuous that he can't accept. The next shot strips away the free sensuality of Don and Midge, as Pete and Trudy sit in bed in their pajamas, like children, with Pete eating Fig Newtons and drinking a glass of milk. Trudy reads Pete's own writing as he waits excitedly to hear her opinion, but she can't express her opinion openly, and instead states that Pete's work is well-written, but too modern for her taste. Trudy suggests Pete submit his article for publication, and he agrees, noting that his father reads The Atlantic Monthly, and that Ken will surely receive recognition for his writing. Pete continues by suggesting that Trudy talk with her former fiancé, Charlie Fittich, who works in publishing. Trudy is surprised by this, growing uncomfortable as Pete puts her in such an awkward position and telling Pete that Charlie was her first. But Pete is concerned more with his own success, preoccupied more with competing against Ken for his father's approval than with competing against Charlie for his wife's affection. The next morning, Don arrives at the office for a meeting. Peggy takes his coat but forgets to greet him, still troubled after discovering his affair. Don looks at her curiously before entering the conference room. This scene is beautifully constructed, shot mostly from a low, wide angle, the conference room table dividing the frame. Eight employees sit around the table, centered by Roger Sterling, with Joan Holloway at his side. Another secretary sits off in the background. The walls are dark, made of paneled wood, and the film crew took panels in and out of the set to allow them to shoot from different angles. During the filming, a piece of the panels fell and hit actor John Hamm in the head, sending him to the hospital and leaving him with seven stitches. The filming continued, out of order, until Hamm could return. Roger begins the meeting by applauding Ken's initiative, offering an underhanded compliment, noting that he didn't personally like Ken's short story, but that he understands why other people would like it. The meeting continues as Joan reads a list of agency clients, Maytag, Rio de Janeiro, and Lucky Strike, and each man gives a short update. As the updates continue, a knock on the door sees Peggy emerge, interrupting to hand Don a note and tell him that he is a visitor in reception. Don is instantly troubled, and he leaves the meeting as some ominous music begins to reinforce the gravity of what's happening. Don finds his visitor at reception, a man named Adam Whitman, who claims to be his younger brother. Adam shows Don the picture in advertising age, claiming he found it in the trash at the Empire State Building where he works as a janitor. Don suggests that Adam is mistaking him for someone else, but Adam insists. I, I know I look different. I grew up tall, okay? But it's me, Dick. Look, I'm a janitor at American Calculator in the Empire State Building. <laughs> And I found this in someone's trash. I thought I saw a ghost. Don frustratedly agrees to meet Adam that afternoon, calling the elevator for him and walking away. He's visibly shaken by the encounter as he strolls back into the conference room, taking his seat as the dialogue continues, muffled, while the music becomes more prominent. A sequence of shots shows the meeting progress, but we hear only the music and the amplified sound of Don tapping a cigarette against his lighter, almost like the ticking of a clock. We're in Don's head during this meeting, and we see the time on the face of his watch as the meeting drags on with Don's thoughts adrift. Joan's voice breaks in, asking if Don is ready for the Liberty Capital meeting. Ken and Paul turn eagerly to hear from Don, 
but he remains deep in thought for a moment before giving a quick update on the new campaign. Roger adjourns the meeting, and Don exits hurriedly as Peggy looks on, thinking he's gone to see his mistress again. The cafe where Don meets Adam, known in the show as D-Light, is the quality cafe in downtown Los Angeles. Closed for business in 2006, the diner has appeared in numerous movies and TV shows, including Seven, Training Day, Catch Me If You Can, and 500 Days of Summer. It's busy, with a daytime crowd filling the dining area of red leather booths while waitresses move about in pink uniforms straight out of the 1950s. The song, You, by the Aquatones, a 1958 hit, echoes longingly in the background. Don shakes Adam's hand and sits down, immediately asking Adam what he wants. Don looks concerned, almost combative, his brow furrowed intensely. Adam, however, is excited, smiling as he tells Don about their family and asks him what has happened to him over the years. Many see this scene as Don at his most cynical and nihilistic, but to me it's gut-wrenching. We're witnessing the death of Don's soul as he rejects his younger brother. Adam longs to connect with him, to share stories about their lives, and Don acquiesces at times, revealing that he cares about Adam. There's a bond of brotherhood that's examined in this scene. Adam has looked up to Don for his entire life, and Don has cared for him, protected him. We get the sense that Don is heartbroken to see Adam, knowing that he must reject him to preserve his secrets. This scene puts on display some of Don's deeply held regret, as Adam reveals more about what brought him to New York City. What happened to you? Why did you do that? Why did you leave me? I couldn't go back there. I knew you weren't dead. I knew I saw you that day, hiding in the window in your uniform. I was only eight, but I knew it was you. It was a long time ago. Adam tells Don that their mother has passed away, and Don responds angrily, saying, Good. He looks down, refusing to make eye contact as Adam remains excited, looking at Don hopefully. I know, I got this lump in my throat. I'd love to eat right now, but I can't. Did you miss me at all? Of course I did. Adam continues to press Don for answers, asking about his life, hoping to rekindle their relationship. This is his estranged older brother, who he's longed to meet again for years. He wants to get to know Don, to have him in his life again. But Don can't accept this. He's created a new life for himself, and Adam's entrance has upset a past he outright rejects. He becomes stern, rejecting any idea of incorporating Adam into his life. Don has resolved to ignore his origins, and Adam watches hopelessly as Don walks away. I don't understand why you're being like this. When I was little, I used to imagine this day happening, and here it is. I don't understand. I'm family. I just want to be a part of your life. Adam, that's not going to happen. I'm going to walk out that door. That's it. I'm not buying your lunch. Because this never happened. That same day, Trudy visits the office of Charlie Fittich, her former fiancé. She asks Charlie if he liked Pete's story, hopeful that he'll agree to publish it. 
but Charlie isn't interested in business. He tells Trudy that he's lonely, that he misses her, and asks her to start an affair. Trudy insists that she's in love with Pete, that she's a newlywed, and that she can't put her care for her husband aside. She instead suggests that maybe she and Charlie will have their time together in old age, but Charlie insists that he can't wait. As the meeting ends, Trudy has no choice but to bluntly reject him. Meanwhile, Peggy sits outside Don's office as Betty arrives with Bobby and Sally to take family photographs. Peggy is alarmed, not expecting Betty, but navigates the situation tactfully, introducing herself and showing Betty into Don's office. But as soon as Peggy leaves, her calm exterior fades slowly into anxiety as she paces around the office. Actress Elizabeth Moss does a great job playing up the franticness of this situation, aided by the rapid cutting and panning of the camera work in a dizzying sequence. Peggy eventually finds Joan, dragging her from the break room into the privacy of the hallway. She explains the situation and asks for Joan's help, but Joan presses her for more details. Peggy eventually tells Joan about Don's mistress. The exchange shows us the careful balance of power in Peggy and Joan's relationship, with Peggy relying on Joan for help and Joan willing to lend her advice in exchange for office gossip. The conversation ends as Peggy concludes that she should have relied on her own judgment. It's probably what I would have done anyway. Oh God, now I really shouldn't have told you. You shouldn't have told me. I'm not going to tell anybody, but you shouldn't have told anybody that. Peggy returns to Don's office, where she entertains the Draper children and chats with Betty. They briefly discuss Peggy's social life before Betty makes a joke about Don and remarks about how little she knows about him. But Don arrives, apologizing for forgetting the appointment, insisting that the mistake was his and not Peggy's. As he leaves with his family, Peggy breathes a sigh of relief, framed by Don's office door. We talked about how Mad Men treats the secrets that lie beneath the surface, and the episode's ad campaign features an executive account for men who want to keep their bank statements discreet. The interactions between Betty, Peggy, and Joan expand on the duality of men's lives at the time. One of Mad Men's strengths is in its portrayal of different types of relationships, and in this sequence we see how Don's wife and his secretary both fit into his life. These are women from two different worlds. They dress and act differently, with Betty coming from wealth while Peggy must earn her own living. And although Betty is Don's wife, he seems more inextricably linked to Peggy, his secretary. Betty's dialogue is sparse but revealing. She talks about how little she knows Don, reaching out to Peggy perhaps to form a bond, to get to know her husband even a bit more closely. In the next scene, Betty discusses the day with her neighbor Francine, lamenting the ruined portraits and noting that Don doesn't make their family a priority in his life. He spends so much time at the office that his secretary knows him better than his wife. Peggy now holds on to some of Don's secrets, and we get the sense that she'd rather not. But it's Peggy's job to keep Don's secrets, and it's in 5G that she comes into her own as a secretary, earning Don's trust by protecting his privacy. In Mad Men's debut episode, we saw Peggy earn Don's pity. In 5G, she earns his respect. The ideal she's built of Don has been torn down, and what's left is the moral dilemma of handling Don's wife, even knowing about his affair. In a later scene, Peggy discusses this with Joan, who sees no dilemma. Keep his record clean here and at home. Honestly, if he sees that in you, you are solid gold. That's my job? Yes. That's his private life. Private. That's how these men are. And it's why we love them. 
5G's advertising pitch happens in Mad Men's familiar conference room, with executives from Sterling Cooper and Liberty Mutual discussing the idea of a discreet executive account. Don allows Paul to pitch the idea, and it's received with laughter, as the men joke about its familiarity, noting the prevalent secrecy of working men at the time. Don becomes visibly disturbed during the scene and leaves. When he returns to his office, Peggy hands Don an envelope from his younger brother. He shuts the door and opens it, finding a picture of himself in an army uniform with a younger boy. Don leaves for the day, insisting to Peggy that he's going home. Meanwhile, Paul's jealousy boils over when he finds Ken in the conference room, talking to several secretaries about his novels. Paul asks Ken for a copy of the short story, ripping the pages from Ken's magazine. He looks sardonically at Ken, who becomes upset, but exits as the women laugh in the background. That evening, Pete's jealousy plays out over dinner with his wife Trudy. She tells him that Pete will be published in a lesser magazine, Boy's Life. But Pete is unsatisfied, insisting that his story was good enough for the New Yorker, and wondering why Trudy didn't help him to get what he wants. Trudy asks why Pete would force her into that situation. Don and Betty share dinner at their home, a meatloaf with ketchup, made from a recipe from Matthew Weiner's mother. Betty discusses summering in Cape May with her parents and comments approvingly on Don's secretary, Peggy. Don mentions that he may need to go to the office. Late that night, Don sits in his office alone, sipping whiskey, looking at Adam's photograph. He pulls out his lighter and sets it on fire, placing it in his waste bin and moving to place a call. Don insists on seeing Adam that night, and the young man agrees excitedly. Don grabs a key, opens his locked desk drawer, and transfers something unseen into his briefcase. When he arrives at Adam's flat, his brother comments on how Don fits in, noting that he looks more like himself. It's another subtextual hint about Don's past, that he doesn't fit in Manhattan, that the dilapidated apartment suits him better. Don asks Adam about his mother and uncle, confirming that both are dead and that Adam is his only remaining family. He tells Adam that he cannot make room in his life for the past, explaining that his life only goes in one direction, forward. Don reaches into his briefcase, pulling out a stack of cash and placing it on the table beside him. He offers it to Adam as a bribe, asking his brother to leave New York and start a new life and revealing the meaning of the episode title. It's $5,000. That's all there is. I want you to take it and I want you to leave New York and I don't want to see or hear from you ever again. That's not what I wanted. That's not right. That's all I can do for you. Adam becomes despondent, asking Don what to do and where to go. Don knows that his brother has no one left in his life, but he insists that he cannot include Adam in his own life. At that time, $5,000 represented a year's salary for an ad executive like Don, and the amount would be worth about $44,000 today. It's all Don has saved, and he sees it as the only way to preserve the life he's built in New York. You thought I was dead. Just go back to thinking that. Where do I go? Adam, that is $5,000. Take your own life. 
too much here. Don leaves Adam, never looking back, and shutting the door which reads 5G, Adam's apartment number. He returns home where Betty stays up, asserting that she wants to talk to Don about something. But though we fear that she might be suspicious of Don, she instead discusses their summer plans in Cape May, acknowledging that Don doesn't get along with her father and suggesting they buy a summer home. Don pauses, relieved that Betty hasn't uncovered any of his secrets. He makes no mention of paying off his brother, instead telling her that they're not that flush. The two lay in bed as the episode concludes. 5G is, as an episode, structurally self-contained. It contains few references to material from previous episodes, and ends where it started, in the Draper's suburban bedroom. Most notable in 5G is the prevalence of secrecy, and how it creates the pull of tension between Mad Men's cast. Previous episodes have revealed some of these characters' private lives, but none have shown so forcefully the impact of what lies beneath. In 5G, we begin to understand this more clearly, as the episode illustrates the delicate balance of maintaining these secrets, most notably through Don, whose picture in an advertising magazine forces him to confront his past. But Don's not alone in this episode, as Peggy learns of his affairs, creating her own secret, and Ken's identity is revealed. It all contributes to a feeling of suspense that intensifies these characters' interactions. We, as the audience, know each of these characters intimately, and in each interaction, we wonder if something has come to the surface, if someone has been found out. Most importantly, though, 5G gives us pieces of the Don Draper backstory we've been longing for since the pilot episode. Mad Men almost immediately cast subtextual doubt around Don. Over the first four episodes, it did little to resolve any of the mystery of his identity. In 5G, our patience is rewarded, heartbreakingly, as we meet Don's brother, who exposes part of his past before Don rejects him, leaving him alone in the world with nothing but a stack of cash worth $5,000. But there's a failure to fully resolve Don's past, an incompleteness, a sense that Don's rejection doesn't imply finality, that we've not seen the last of Adam Draper, and that we've not uncovered the last of Don's secrets. And we're left similarly unconvinced about Peggy's willingness to manage Don's secretive personal life. So while Mad Men's fifth installment feels structurally self-contained, it seems clear that its events will have significant consequences for characters like Don and Peggy, and we'll expand further on those characters in our next episode as we explore Peggy's growing status in the office and revisit more of Don's past. Hi everyone, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.